Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. This week, Recep Erdogan got a standing ovation for claiming that Hamas are freedom fighters. So with the Muslim world squaring off against the West, how exactly is the North Atlantic Alliance going to pay the jizzer on this one? New polling suggests that Europeans think the Russian sanctions have been a disaster, yet our present political class still have too much skin in the game to walk this one back. So how long must our emperors remain naked before the embarrassment becomes excruciating? In Britain, after two dire by-elections, the Conservative Party is breaking records in all the wrong directions. With the party due to be reduced to a rump anyway, what will they do when Britain dips into recession next year and the rump becomes a morsel? But first, turning Turk. Recep Erdogan, the Turkish president, has come out Well, the short answer is he's come out very hard in support of Palestine, but I think the support extends a little bit beyond Palestine. He seems to be expressing support for Hamas itself. He gave a speech in front of Turkish parliament, which by all accounts was extremely well received with a standing ovation. And he said that uh, Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but, quote, patriotic liberation movement fighting to protect Palestinian lands and people End quote. He said that Hamas were, were Mujahideen fighters. That's obviously the Arabic word for a fighter engaged in jihad, a holy war, defending their homeland. He went on to say about Israel, quote, Israel is killing children. We will not allow the killing of children. We had a plan to go to Israel, but it is cancelled. We will not go. And of course, he's referring to the fact that after this speech, the speech is the announcement, I suppose, that he's cancelling the plan to go to Israel. Now, Much can be said about this. There's a little bit more in the speech that is of interest that I might bring up in a moment. But the framing of this is is interesting. First of all, obviously, backing Hamas is a pretty big deal. It goes far beyond the kind of uh, more normal stance of saying the situation is terrible. We need to establish peace. He's taking the side of Hamas. Beyond this, I think... I think it was broadly assumed that Turkey would uh, take the more centrist position on this. I don't think anyone expected the Turks to come out in support of Israel, but I think it was widely thought that they'd come out somewhere in the middle. They'd be saying, like what we see from Russia and China, effectively, we need to make peace. Bombing the Palestinians is wrong. To my knowledge, Russia and China haven't come out in support of Hamas. So this was quite quite surprising in a way. Then it got into his speech got into some anti-Western rhetoric as well. He said the perpetrators of the massacre and the destruction taking place in Gaza are those providing unlimited support for Israel, presumably talking about the United States. Israel's attacks on Gaza for both itself and those supporting them amount to murder and mental illness. 
which is pretty strong words. And then the last one I'll read you is, he says, quote, Oh, Israel, you're not going anywhere with that mindset. Whether you take America with you or the West, you cannot go anywhere. End quote. He says something about hugging bodies of dead children then. But that's pretty clear broadside, not just against Israel, not just coming out in support of Hamas, but it's anti-Western. And I don't really want to parse what he's saying too closely, but when he says whether you take America with you or the West, I wonder if he's kind of saying if you pursue this path, you're going to end in a very bad way. He's clearly saying that. And you're going to take America and the West with you. Now, if that's what he means, and I think taking the context into account and so on, that might be what he means. I think he might be staking, taking a bet here that the US can't and the West really can't really afford to get involved in this kerfuffle in the Middle East, especially if it goes regional, and that it could end up being a bit of a graveyard of empires of sorts, which is not an unreasonable assessment of the situation, but it's, it's again, surprising. This is how I think China and Russia are thinking about the situation, probably Iran too. But to see Turkey take that side is very interesting. Of course, the reason it's so interesting, beyond the fact that Turkey is an enormous country and has the biggest military in the region, we can talk about that later, is that Turkey is a NATO member. And NATO, so far as I understand, has has met recently, I think this was just after the attack, three, four days, no, six days after the attack, NATO warned Iran, Hezbollah against taking advantage of the situation in Israel. So I won't say unify, um, NATO had a highly unified stance on this because the individual member states are more divided on it, I would say, than the Ukraine war. But they had a relatively unified stance, and now one of their members is coming out and supporting Hamas. So I think there's a lot we can say on this, but what did you make of this interesting development? I think it's a little bit less of a, a tectonic shift within the, the NATO bloc than perhaps you suggested could be there. The, the reason I say that is, is this. The, we spoke on the podcast many months ago about Turkey's crucial geostrategic position, literally its geography when I say that, and how strategically important Turkey's geography is, and how that means that Turkey or or Turkey's predecessor states through history have been able to move strategically in several directions. If you look historically, they've been able to move south into the Arabian Peninsula and even into North Africa. They've been able to move northwest into the Balkans and even Central and Southeastern Europe. Uh, And they've been able to move northeast as well into the Caucasus and uh, further north into the around the Caspian shore and into the Volga Basin. Traditionally, Turkey's had several avenues of potential movement strategically. Now, if you go back about 10 years ago, Turkey had reasonably big ambitions for the Middle East region and, and, and perhaps even North Africa as well. There was there was talk, some of it condescending, about Erdogan's ambition for a neo-Ottoman empire. But generally, I think that you know they had quite serious ambitions in the Middle East. They were involved in a, a series of operations uh, supporting rebels against Assad in Syria, moving occasionally into northern Iraq with military force, and even going against Israel. There was the famous 
humanitarian flotilla that Israel organized for the Palestinians. That series of efforts to push into the Middle East strategically, I think, has has come to naught, or at least it's suffered a series of setbacks in recent years. The Russians propped up Assad and then allowed him to win the Syrian civil war, which he's now done. I think we we can all agree, bar bar, the, bar one or two bits of loose ends. Iran is really the major player in Iraq at the moment, the major foreign player in Iraq at the moment. And and, and I think Israel's tried to, uh, sorry, uh, Turkey's tried to withdraw a little bit from its entanglements in the Middle East. And I think Erdogan had even made an effort to uh, kind of normalize relations with Israel even. And, you know, the fact that he had a meeting with Netanyahu that could indeed be cancelled is, is is proof of that. And in in more recent years, what Turkey's done is it's, it, it's shifted its uh, strategic focus to the Northeast and the Caucasus, where, in fact, it's enjoyed a you know, fairly significant victory. Azerbaijan first won a a war against Armenia in the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Uh, And more recently, uh, Azerbaijan's won another victory, taking full control over Karabakh and and, and, and having the Armenians sign a very peace treaty that's uh, incredibly favorable to Azerbaijan. And now they're moving on to a, a corridor that would link Turkey to the Caspian through a, a thin sliver of Armenia, running along the Iranian border, and ultimately to Azerbaijan and Baku. This is the background to this situation. However, I think if Turkey has got any ambitions whatsoever in the in the Arabian Peninsula, it's really got to come out in favour of the Palestinians. And given its kind of flirtation with normalising and, and maintaining very good relations with Israel, it perhaps has to do that quite definitively. Otherwise, countries like Iran uh, and even Saudi Arabia and Egypt, who are traditional, traditionally the U.S.'s best friends, if if one can put it that way, in the Middle East, have come out in favour of the Palestinians. I think Turkey, if it has any ambitions in that region whatsoever, was going to be forced to come out quite strongly in favour of the Palestinians. One more thing I would say on this as well is Turkey took in millions of refugees from the Syrian and and Iraq versus Islamic State conflicts. People will remember the number of refugees transiting Turkey and, and, and going through the Balkans into Western Europe. People will remember the deal that the EU did to send them back to Turkey. But of course, that means that there's a, a mil- several million strong refugee or immigrant community in Turkey, which is a political issue in Turkey in the same way that migration is in Western Europe and immigration is in Western Europe and in the US. It also is to a certain degree in Turkey as well, like developing countries or non-Western countries have these issues also. Um, And I think, you know, it probably isn't so interested in having you know, a large number of Palestinians come north. So it would probably like to contain this conflict in some way. But yeah, I mean, it is a big issue because it goes against the US, it goes against the the standard NATO stance. But I, it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine what else Turkey could do if it's to maintain any kind of credibility with its main partners and rivals and frenemies in the Middle East. Yeah, I think the... Erdogan's statements raise that perennial problem of how you 
analyze political ideology in geopolitics. If, if what you're laying out there, I think is is a fairly kind of real politic or realist assessment of Turkey's foreign policy situation, but sometimes ideology, it, it, not that it overcomes those kind of considerations, but it can have an effect on how should I put it the priorities that 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 are are attempted to be reached through those considerations and i think i think a couple of things first of all what's shaping up in the middle east increasingly looks like i think we've talked about it before it increasingly looks like some of the muslim countries might engage in a in a general insurgency and not just against israel potentially also against american assets in the region and so on we've seen some of that in the past few days we've seen i think america bombed syria yesterday in response to some attacks on their bases how how seriously do you take that? Is is a call for jihad, for example? Is Erdogan labeling Hamas mujahideen? Are these just convenient terms for cynical leaders to whip up militants in the region, or do they mean it? That's a real question. Erdogan has had ties for a very long time to the Muslim Brotherhood. I I have an article here from August which says that Erdogan received a delegation of the International Union of Muslim Scholars, which is a Muslim Brotherhood affiliate organization. Erdogan is certainly a Muslim. I would think he may be an Islamist. And that kind of is what ties into this. Is it, Are these calls for jihad a cynical, opportunistic attempt to use regional forces, militias and so on, to put pressure on it on Israel for ultimately a political outcome? Or is there a component to this where when they say holy war, they mean holy war? That that the that the current situation is delivering an opportunity for people who are affiliated with Islamism, with the Muslim Brotherhood and with like organizations, to take advantage of this moment and to try and really go for it. If not destroy Israel, I don't think Israel is going to be destroyed, but give Israel a serious bloody nose, put it on the back foot, and perhaps even get rid of some of the American influence in the region. I don't see that as totally out there. I think that's perfectly possible. I guess that feeds into the second question, which is the NATO question. And you alluded to, to it there in your comments when you said, how, how much can he, he alienate his frenemies? We don't know. And there's not that much point in speculating about it. But I would just draw the line under one thing. Up until this speech yesterday, at the time of recording, we were all of the opinion, we were all under the impression that NATO was expanding, that Sweden were going to join, and so on. And the whole kind of vibe was, even if the Ukraine war hadn't gone very well, the counteroffensive had failed, the sanctions have been a bit of a disaster and so on. Even if all that is true, the, the silver lining was that NATO came out of it rejuvenated, possibly with new and important members. Turkey taking this position may throw a spanner in those works. I'm not, I'm not saying that this could lead to a fracturing of NATO, although it could, but I seriously doubt that NATO is now on track for as long as this conflict goes on in the Middle East to have new members to form into a more unified organization. Just for one, you need a unilateral support. You need, you need everybody to support the 
any any member any country that wants to join and nato turkey has veto power over that now nato is probably going to go through a very rocky patch as this conflict plays out because of of turkey's position i think in the same way that we discussed that turkey has lots of directions for strategic focus earlier in this episode at the same time it has lots of strategic rivals and potential strategic considerations to take into account in the same way that it's got its kind of bona fides in the the Middle East among the the general Muslim population. So it has its bona fides as a member of NATO. So these are two things that Turkey has to do. With regard to the how seriously that we should take Agan's comments, I would say this. One of the key kind of liberal Western criticisms of Agan's rule in Turkey, especially in the early days, was his Islamification of Turkish politics and society. Turkey as people will probably know, was set up a, originally after the from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire after the First World War as a secular country to the extent where it was also set up with a, a, a unit within the army focused on coup d'etat to remove anybody who wanted to take Turkey away from its kind of its secular founding principles and toward um, something more Islamic. And Erdogan seemed to be introducing more Islamic ideas into politics and society. He, he was elected as a conservative, social conservative. And in that part of the world, social conservatism involves Islam. I think it would be very difficult for Erdogan in a situation like this not to stand up for his Muslim brothers in Palestine and their suffering. Obviously, Palestine is a huge issue among the the average citizen it, throughout the Middle East, whether it's the the kind of the Persian end, the Arab end, the North African end, or the or the Turkish end in the north. Right throughout, the the Palestinians have huge support from the average person there. So, if Ferdinand has any ambitions whatsoever in the Middle East, or Turkey has ambitions, they need to maintain that credibility. And I think that's especially so for Erdogan because of the nature of his government and some of the ideas he introduced when when he was elected. Um, you're also 100% right that this really puts another, it really sands up the cogs of NATO even more. People will note that Sweden still hasn't received Turkish approval for its membership of NATO. Finland has, but Sweden has not. People have really stopped talking about that recently, but that's still an ongoing issue. And it was linked to certain sections of the Muslim diaspora in in Sweden, specifically people who Turkey saw as terrorists, the some members of Kurdish organizations. If now you have if now you have European nations and the US backing Israel hundred percent and Turkey obviously backing the Palestinians 100%. It's just, as I say, it's going to add yet more sand into the machinery of getting Sweden into NATO. Two ways about that, whatever Erdogan's motivations, whether they're genuine or cynical, whatever goes on in the Middle East, that's just the case that it's it's going to add more, it's going to clog up the workings of uh, NATO insofar as Turkey's membership. It's just a fact. Sanctions, busting, 
Yeah, someone's finally done it. Some some madman has gone and polled the European people on how they think about the sanctions related to the Ukraine war. The polling was done by a Hungarian think tank, which I saw some commenters online were saying, oh, the Hungarians are just making stuff up because they, because they haven't been supportive of sanctions. It's probably actually the fact that every other think tank and institution in Europe has been so supportive of sanctions that they haven't bothered to run a poll. The poll's been run. I'll give you the broad takeaway and then a little bit more detail on it. The overall feeling among Europeans is that the US and China win from the sanctions, the EU, Russia, and Ukraine lose, and that their own country, for the most part, loses. So I would say that's a pretty, pretty negative outcome. How close is it to objective reality? Pretty close. I I think Russia probably haven't lost that much. I can understand how the average voter would have that perception. They don't really understand what's going on with the Russian economy. The other, the other ones we'll talk about more in a moment, the, the fact that people have come to these conclusions, but the others seem to be common sense derived in a sense. Okay, so to go into the details a little bit, on the EU-wide data, 54% think that America's a winner, 22% think it's a loser. So pretty clear majority there think it's a, think it's a winner. 54% think China's a winner. 19% think it's a loser, 26% think Europe, the European Union is a winner, and 56% think it's a loser. So it looks like around 55% of people know what's going on. About 22-23% of people are a little delusional, maybe they take the newspaper headlines too seriously, and then maybe there's 25-30% of people who just go, what are sanctions? I don't read the news, I don't care. So to go into the kind of country breakdown, this is really interesting. So I'll try and give an overview because there's quite a lot of data here. Every single European country, and that includes the United Kingdom, Switzerland, and Norway, think that America won from the sanctions. A majority of their citizens think that America won from the sanctions. Same is true of China. So that's pretty much unanimous across all countries. The majority think that. Absolutely no country, the majority of their citizens, thought that the EU won. All of them thought the EU lost from it. One country in the European Union, or in Europe, I suppose you could say, thought that their country won from the sanctions, and that was Norway. Again, an accurate assessment, because Norway has enormous amounts of gas its LNG shipments went up and so on. So people know about this stuff. The average person in the street kind of knows what's going on, which is nice. Four countries, no, five countries thought that Ukraine was a winner from the sanctions, which is unusual. But I'll just go through who they are because it's interesting. Norway, so maybe they're projecting their own win with the LNG onto Ukraine. Latvia, obviously famously hawkish Latvia, so that's not that surprising. Estonia, also famously hawkish Estonia. Finland, don't really get that one. And Denmark, don't really get that one either. Last data point, and I'll hand it over to you. Two countries, I love this one, two countries thought that Russia won from the sanctions, right? And they were Greece and Cyprus. <clears throat> now, why would Greece and Cyprus think Russia won from the sanctions. I'll tell you, because all the shipping goes out of Greece and Cyprus. <laughs> and Greek, sh- um, uh, Greek shipping companies have very much so been involved 
in getting Russian oil into Europe, not around the sanctions, but it's a gray area. And so those two countries have a more accurate assessment of what's happened in Russia. They've seen that after the sanctions, the energy prices skyrocketed and Russia was still able to send the oil into Europe through Greece. Overall, I think it's a fantastic poll. It's It really shows the regional disparities, how people are thinking about things, what local media are reporting and so on. And everything adds up. I, the only things I don't really understand are maybe Denmark, Finland, thinking Ukraine won from the sanctions, but everything else makes complete sense, I think. Yeah, two interesting things about this. The first one, voters taken as a whole aren't stupid. <laughs> Um, they can see what's happening. They can see when they're getting a raw deal. And despite the fact that very little in the media, in, in, in the kind of, in the television news in the evening, I mean, certainly in Britain, maybe it's different in France and Germany. I, you know, you watch the evening news and they talk very little about the effect of sanctions on the UK. The way that they present it, in fact, is if sanctions are having some horrible effect on, for instance, the price that homeowners have to pay for their gas and electricity bill at the end of the month. You know, it used to be 600 quid a year, and now it's like 2,400 a year. Just I'm picking an example out. And that's obviously at least partially a result of the sanctions that Britain itself and the rest of the Western world have imposed on Russia. But the way that they present it is they'll say that the price increases due to Russia's war in Ukraine. They, you know, they don't say it was due to the response that we chose to that or anything else or the sanctions we imposed and didn't have to. We could have chosen to respond in another way. They, they will just say it was due to the war as if, as if the sanctions were a necessary or even mechanical response to that that couldn't be changed. Furthermore, politicians don't talk about it at all. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they don't want to talk about the, the 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 negative consequences of sanctions whatsoever and yet still voters obviously know <laughs> obviously know what's happening which is you know quite impressive they are clearly not a stupid bunch of people and they understand instinctively when they get a raw deal and i think that's the first takeaway from this the second takeaway from this is uh, governments are falling Across Europe, uh, it, it's difficult to remember, apart from the underrated Mr. Orban, and when I say underrated, I mean as a political operator, it, it, it's difficult to remember an incumbent winning a single election in Europe in the last kind of 18 months or so. And I wonder whether this understanding that sanctions are a bad thing is contributing to that and, and, and whether it'll continue contributing uh, to governments falling uh, across Europe in the future if they continue to support sanctions. And if that's the case, it is inevitable in a democracy that somebody, some political operator, will see the market opportunity there to come out against sanctions, as I believe Mr. Fico, am I pronouncing that right? Fico, Fico in, in Slovakia, recently did and won an election in Slovakia, and as Mr. Orban did, and won an election in, in, in Hungary, albeit as the incumbent. Whether you'll also get anti-sanctions parties making hay in some of the larger European countries, like Germany, like France, like Britain, like Spain, like Italy. Even Mrs. Maloney 
in Italy, even though she was labelled a populist, has been in practice extremely Atlanticist and extremely hawkish on the Ukraine issue in government. I wonder how long it's going to take for people to see the political opportunity here and start making hay. Yeah, I think the cleanest example is Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. They're now the second largest party in Germany. They they were polling until the sanctions-induced inflation took off. They were polling consistently 10%. And this was a right-wing 10% of the population that were mainly annoyed about immigration, and they couldn't really move the needle at all. And then they come out and start criticizing sanctions, and they're up at about 23%. They've more than doubled their support on this single issue. I think it's on this single issue. No one else has given me any reason to think that the surge of AFD to second place in the polls has anything to do other than with with the sanctions policy. So I think you, you can already see the potential for a, an entrepreneur, as it were, a political entrepreneur to take advantage of this. The other thing that I'd say, echoing what you were saying with the, the general public versus the kind of elite opinion, I actually think it's quite dangerous, this situation. The public are so aware of a huge issue that is immediately affecting their lives. They have basically a correct assessment on it. And the entire elite are, frankly, lying to them. That's really, really unstable situation. That's like something you'd hear jokes about in the late Soviet Union, that that the Pravda newspaper would just... They'd say that there's toilet paper in the shop and people would be looking at the shop and there'd be no toilet paper there. That's really, really, really discrediting to institutions. But And they don't know. that The problem is that the leaders don't even know about this because the first poll had to be run by Hungary, right? They won't poll it. They won't talk about it. Among elite groups, there's a taboo about talking about uh, the potential failure of sanctions. It's not like you get expelled from everything or banned from everything if you do. People don't, you won't, it'll be hard to get that piece published in a major newspaper, for example. Um, So there's a real danger there. There's a real, the elite class have clearly set up a taboo around this subject. They don't want to talk about it. They won't talk about it. And everybody else, the whole of society, or not the whole, but the majority of society have figured out the reality of it. Add on to that the fact that it's immediately impacting their lives and everybody knows it. And you've got a really, really unstable situation there. I, I do hope that people come out and they start actually discussing this issue and that we air this in public because to keep it locked in, festering underneath public opinion, it's, it's not good for democracy, frankly, and it's not good for the stability of our society. Wipeout 2024. Speaking of incumbent governments having a hard time, we saw some seismic by-election results over the last week in the UK. There were two by-elections, which is where an individual seat in Parliament for various reasons comes up for grabs in an election outside a general election. There were two by-elections, both of which were safe Tory seats, safe Conservative Party seats, one mid-Bedfordshire and one in Tamworth. And Based on absolutely astonishing swings in mid-Bedfordshire, 21%, and in Tamworth, 24%, they swung from being very safe Conservative seats to being fairly safe Labour seats. And I just think that this highlights the extent to which the Conservative Party in Britain is in serious trouble. 
Now, of course, by-elections sometimes act as a kind of vent for frustration against frustration about the government, and there can sometimes even be single-issue elections, and quite often you tend to find that these things narrow down as we approach a general election, and we get that four to six weeks of campaigning for a general election, things tend to narrow down a bit. But I think with 24% swings, we can seriously say that this is a disaster, and it is it bodes extremely ill for the Conservative Party itself, which is desperately struggling. And before the UK tips into recession, which it appears to now be doing. Really serious issues for the Conservative Party in Britain and looking increasingly inevitable that we shall have a Labour government before long. Yeah, I wrote an essay on this for Unheard. I think the Tories are making a huge mistake here, but we'll go into that in a moment. Just to give a sense, I mean, most people in Britain probably know already, but listeners who aren't here should give them a sense. Uh, Conservative Party has dropped in the polls, in the general election polls, from about 50% they were polling in uh, around the time when the pandemic took off in early 2020, uh, dropped down during 2021 to around 40%, but they were still ahead. Since the beginning of 2022, effectively, at the end of 2021, they've just been cratering. Now, and they're now down at about 25% labor up labor have touched 50 but they're currently up just just below 50 so what's happened it's pretty simple really the the conservatives always portray themselves as the party of um economic competency that the economy will do well when the tories are in charge and the economy's gone to the dogs basically there are a lot of problems in the british economy we've talked about them before but i think that the the main driving force here has been the inflation, which has been thought of by voters as a cost of living crisis, as they've thought about it over most places in Europe. And the inflation has been very painful for people. There, there has been full employment and so on. Now, of course, the inflation, well, it's related to two things. First of all, the initial wave was, was related to lockdowns. But the wave that we're currently seeing the end of is, of course, related to the sanctions. So it's related to we were, what we were talking about earlier. And I'd say if there's a taboo in most European countries against talking negatively about the sanctions, the taboo it's double, double so in Britain. It's it's really not you're not supposed to talk about it, or people don't like talking about it. Again, everybody knows we saw in the in the polling that we discussed earlier in the show that that Britons are are lining up and polling the same as everybody else in Europe. They know what's going on, but no one will talk about it. Again, I think very dangerous for democracy. But but that's what's happened. Now, now here's the thing. You just highlighted the by-elections and how bad those results actually were. They were really unimaginably bad, really. They've lost two very safe seats there and in a, in a bit of a landslide. The issue is that most conservatives, you know, I, I've talked to people in the party and so on, MPs and strategists and all sorts of people, and the, they know they're going to lose. The Tories know that they're going to lose. And the word on the street now is that they'll probably have to call an election in about six months. Here's the problem. They're currently polling at about 25%. My understanding of that is that a lot of people will lose their seats. A lot of Tory MPs will lose their seats. But most people think that the seats that will be kept are fairly predictable. I've talked to MPs, and the first thing that you say to them is, is your your seat safe in this election? And most of them that I've talked to have a pretty good sense if it's safe or not. 
they'll say, yeah, my seat is safe or no, it's going to be an uphill battle. Here's the problem. A recession would completely throw that off. If a recession happens in the UK prior to the election, the Tories will then not just have quote unquote mismanaged the economy in terms of cost of living, but they'll also have mismanaged the economy in terms of a recession. And if that happens and the unemployment rate goes up and people start fearing for their jobs, which is very scary, actually, it's a lot more scary than the cost of living crisis to fear for your job. If that happens, then the current polling on the Tories could be highly misleading. I don't know how low they can go. I don't know how many people in Britain will vote for the Tories no matter what they do. I have no idea how how large their hardcore base is. But is it 25%? My guess will be probably not. Is it 20%? Maybe. Is it 15%? Quite possibly. If you saw those kind of numbers, it could destroy the party, frankly. If they if they came in with, call it worst case scenario, if they came in with 15% of the vote, that could be the end of the Tory party. It really could. I think they should take this a lot more seriously. I wrote in the essay, the, the, the solution to this is basically to call an early election. I argued in terms of an asymmetric bet. People in finance will know asymmetric bets, but what it means, it's pretty simple, is that you flip a coin and if it comes up heads, you win £50. And if it comes up tails, you lose £25. That's uh, an asymmetric bet with an upside. So if you're rational, you'll take that bet, right? Because you'll win more than you lose. But of course, an asymmetric bet can also mean that you lose more than you win. You can flip the odds there. And I think this is an asymmetric bet. If if the Tories put off the election, their prospects aren't going to get any better. They're just treading water at best. The best case scenario is they tread water from now until, until an election. But if a recession happens in the interim, they lose even more. And the, the flip side of that bet is for Labour. If Labour go in with the economy not in recession, and then it goes into recession, they have to impose austerity and all their spending plans are mucked up they'll lose the support of the public in 12 to 18 months. Whereas if they go in after a recession, they can blame the the recession on the Tories. I still think they'll lose public support because I think they'll have to impose austerity and I think their spending plans will go away, but it'll probably take longer, probably take 24 to 36 months or something like that. So the Tories really should call an election, but I, I don't know the inner workings, but I get the sense that the party isn't really thinking strategically even if you could go around and get people to agree with you about this assessment of a recession, they probably would still fi- have a very hard time just, just getting the moving parts in order. Look, I'm not calling the destruction of the Tory party, but I am raising it as a possibility. And listeners who are interested in British politics, I would seriously advise to watch the economic headlines coming out over the next six months. Yeah, I think listeners, both in the UK, who might understand this issue better, but you know, I know we have a lot of people listening in the US, they need to be aware that it is entirely possible that over the next 18 months, when an election is called, the Conservative Party, the Tory party in Britain, perhaps the oldest political party in the world, will be wiped out. It will be reduced to such a small number of seats in Parliament that it becomes unviable as a political party, that it simply cannot recover as the natural party of government in the UK. I just want to give listeners a you know an idea of uh, of why this might happen. You know, if you look at 
polling data at the minute, most of them have Labour ahead on 46 or 47% of the vote in terms of voting intention, and the Conservative Party on a lowly 26%, fully 21 points behind the Labour Party. Now, because we have, like for American House of Representative votes, but unlike European parliamentary votes, Britain runs on a first-past-the-post system. And what that means is that exact percentages of the vote do not translate perfectly into seats in Parliament. In fact, quite often, you can get quite warped and perverse results. You know, famously in the early 80s, there were a few very strange results where parties got 20, 25% of the vote and ended up with only six seats in Parliament out of 650. But anyway, that the current polls would translate if you look at some models available online, to Labour winning a total of 371 seats. Now, that's a little bit short of the all-time record for most numbers of seats won in a British general election. That record is held by the Labour Party in 1997, when they won 418 seats. But that was the all-time record, and it came after 18 years of conservative government, it came with a conservative government at, or the conservative party at an all-time low in terms of their respect among the general population. It was beset by sleaze and scandal and corruption. They'd suffered a major economic disaster in the early 90s with the European exchange rate mechanism, financial crisis. And at the same time, they were going up against a Labour Party run by whatever you think about him, one of the most talented political operators since the war in Tony Blair, and especially the people who advised him like Alastair Campbell and Peter Mandelson, who were very cunning individuals. They're not far short of that kind of all-time record. And it would mean that uh, Labour would have a majority of 92 with the Conservatives reduced to only 185 seats. But I think it could get even worse. If you look at really good academic and pollster Matthew Goodwin, he he has he has the Tories right down on 21%. He, he, he actually did some surveys. And one of the things that he asked was, he asked people to say in their own words what they think the Conservatives have got right since coming to power. The most common response was nothing. The next most frequently answers were, not sure, not much, don't know, COVID, not a lot, absolutely nothing, and F all. So that gives you some kind of idea about where the Conservative Party are at in terms of their position. But as you quite rightly say, it could get worse. The Office for Budget Responsibility expected us to be about, right now, to be about two-thirds of the way through the biggest fall in standards of living in Britain since the 1950s. But they didn't factor in a recession around now. So I think both you and I agree that a recession is coming in Britain, and that's going to make the standard of living crisis even worse. You've also got issues with Rishi Sunak. In in Britain, although we don't have a presidential system, the individual popularity of of the leaders of the parties is an important factor. And while Rishi Sunak was quite a bit more popular than the Conservative Party as a whole, that's now coming much more into line. Quite recently, he hit his lowest ever 
I think in in the summer they did polling on that, and Rishi Sunak hit his lowest ever uh, level of personal approval rating. And it all looks as if it's going, you know, extremely badly. And we could be facing an epochal change in Britain at the next election where the Conservative Party potentially 185 seats at this stage, even though that would give the Labour Party a majority of almost 100, a really big majority. I think 185 seats would be a good result. I think it's entirely possible to imagine given the economic outlook sorry given the economic outlook given their the the base for of popularity from which they're entering this negative economic spell given the fact that we're seeing a series of 1990s style kind of tory sleaze and corruption scandals most recently with Crispin Blunt who's being charged with a, a conservative party mp who's been charged with sexual assault and drug possession it could really get a lot worse. Like you say, could, could it go down to 20, 15% where you, you just get those hardcore votes Tory no matter what? I think potentially it, it really could, given what's coming down the pipe. Yeah, I think at that point, it's it's Tory party members voting for the party. It's not far off. I'd just say really quickly before we go, for those people who are very interested in politics that listen to the show and aren't really into the kind of economics news or whatever, a couple of pointers if you want a recession watch from here moving forward. First thing to watch, I think, is the overall unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, this hasn't been discussed much in Britain, and I'm not really sure why, but the unemployment rate has risen from about 3.8% in April to about 4.3% in July. So that's a 50 basis points move. That's 0.5%. That's a real uptick in unemployment. If that keeps going up at that rate, so that's 0.5% every three months, it'll be up It'll be up by, by January, I suppose, by the time we start getting the data in. It could be up another percentage point, really. Now, if that, once that unemployment rate climbs above about 5%, I think I'd be calling a recession at that point, maybe 5.5. I'd have to look at the numbers going back. But anyway, my point is, Watch the unemployment rate. The newspapers aren't, Financial Times might be reporting on it every now and again, but the newspapers currently aren't reporting that uptick in the unemployment rate. Just one or two other statistics to to give you to orient people who aren't watching this. The housing sector, I think I've always said, we've talked about it many times on the show, will be one of the key things dragging down the economy. Private housing construction output was down 7.1% in August probably worth watching construction volumes, whatever you're watching. There's loads of different data for construction volumes. It's worth watching. That's actually down 16% from its peak in in May of 2022. The other one to watch, I wouldn't say that non-specialists could actually find this data because it's kind of hard to get on ONS, but um, vacancies in the real estate sector, they, they've fallen about 30% since that's between July and September on the previous quarter. So basically since the summer, they've fallen about 30%. Okay, people aren't going to watch real estate vacancy rates online. But I think most people in Britain have a pretty good sense of the housing market. Most people have a friend who works in, in the real estate business in some way, whether they be a builder whether they be work in the construction investment sector or whether they work in in auctioneers, real estate agents for our American friends. Um, I think you can get a pretty good sense if, if the building vacancies have gone down. Most people can anecdotally. So those are the things I'd say to watch. 
And if they continue to deteriorate at the rate that they are currently deteriorating at, I'm not calling a recession on the next six months, but a recession in the next six months is possible. And political, politically, interested, politically interested people and those who care about the future of the Tory party should be paying close attention. Yeah, and I, I would say as well, just add a little bit of value to our non-UK listeners. I think, in fact, we have uh, more listeners in the United States than we do in uh, Britain. It might be worthwhile offering a little bit of colour on what a Labour government would look like. I think we both think it more likely, I think we think it's highly likely that Labour will win the next election. So I think it's worthwhile just explaining to people what a Labour government would look like. I think it's un, it, it's improbable that they'll change a great deal economically. They, they won't be particularly socialist at all. I, I, I'm not sure the bond market would allow them to engage in a kind of a a traditional kind of left-wing socialist economic program. And I think Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has made it very clear that he's going to tinker around the edges of the economy, soak the rich a little bit on taxes, slightly higher marginal rates, slightly higher bonuses, taxes, that sort of thing. Perhaps marginally higher wages for nurses in the NHS, but there's really going to be no radical changes. The, the general economic model of the United Kingdom is going to remain essentially unchanged under a Labour government. In terms of foreign policy, there's going to be very few changes as well, although the tinge might be more like the German Green Party, if that makes sense, the kind of the the kind of foreign policy noises that they make. However, on social and constitutional issues, I think foreign watchers can expect quite a radical programme. Certainly, any Labour government with a large majority will have to give something to its MPs and media outriders and supporters nationally. And if it's not going to be economic, then it's going to have to be social and constitutional. On constitutional matters, uh, Sakir Starmer has endorsed an extremely radical program and proposal put together by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, which involves huge amounts of devolution. It uh, essentially involves the federalization of the United Kingdom and the abolition of the the House of Lords as we know it, and the beefing up of the Supreme Court to give it powers that are more like the Supreme Court of the United States, and a whole range of, as I say, extremely radical constitutional changes. And in addition to that, it's likely that Mr. Starmer would have, or Sakia would have, what most middle of the road or, or, or conservative, social conservative people would see as a, as a very radical social program. Um, you know, people can understand what that would be like. It'll be more like the progressive wing, the 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 AOC wing of the Democrat Party or, or, or the Green Party in Europe. So that's generally what a Labour Party government would probably look like, in uh, my view. And I think that's something that, you know, because if we're saying that the Labour Party are going to win the next election, I think people should logically follow that through and ask what would Britain look like under a Labour Party and what are the consequences of that likely to be? And there you have it, dear listeners. We are fresh from a huge victory.